electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, a current fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina. He joined me for CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward live stream on September 16th. He last joined us in late April, back in the early weeks of lockdown. We invited him back for a five-month checkup, so to speak. Here's our conversation. You know, you... Um you have not been working in the administration since 2019, but if you could snap your fingers and be running our public health response now, what would you have us be doing as a country to try to help us get through this faster? In terms of what we would do presently or what we would do if we could sort of roll back time and uh, do things differently? What would we I do now, mean the current, looking forward? Right now? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think that um, we need to do as much as we can by leaning on the least intrusive tools that we have. And that's going to be trying to get universal masking. It's going to be trying to get good testing into, uh, into the uh, medical marketplace and also do good contact tracing, you know, places that have a lot of spread, you get beyond the point where you can do very effective tracking and tracing. You can use this sort of mitigate spread, but you're not going to be able to really control the epidemic with just testing and tracing alone. But there's lots of parts of the country that have gotten control of their epidemics and they can have the opportunity to maintain control and maintain better control heading into a high risk season as we enter the fall and the winter um, by deploying testing very aggressively, testing not just symptomatic populations, but asymptomatic populations, particularly in congregate settings that are high risk where we know there's um, a risk of spread because people can't socially distance in certain settings. You think of like the meatpacking plants, for instance, um, and tr- make sure that you don't have asymptomatic spread, that you're not having um, spread that you're not detecting in those kinds of settings where you can have the, the opportunity for a very large outbreak and, and try to encourage universal masking because if those measures fail, what you're ultimately going to have to fall back on are some form of mitigation where you're going to ask certain businesses to close, you're going to potentially close schools. And those are far more costly, far more intrusive. I think they impose much more burden on, on individuals. And so we need to lean as much as possible on the things that are relatively simple interventions, low cost interventions that don't impose a lot of burden on people. You can go about, you know, most aspects of your normal um, daily life without um, without much intrusion if you have to wear a mask when you are in a congregate setting, for example. Do you think there are ways to um, to try to break through the resistance that some folks have to wearing masks? It's become this sort of political divide? Um, And and are there better ways of messaging? I mean, how do you change behaviors when they start to become so entrenched in that way? It's hard now because this has become um, symbolic politically. Um, You you know, some parts of the country or some some, um, quarters, you're expressing your sort of political views by whether you choose to wear a mask or not, which is sort of odd how this has become um, a political issue and taken on a political dimension. But I think, unfortunately, it got taken up um, in, in our political dialogue in a way that, you know, sort of broke down along party lines, if you will. 
there's an opportunity to unring that um, if if our political leaders would really lean on it heavily and speak to uh, the value of wearing masks. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, I think it's not too late to try to encourage more widespread mask wearing. What you have seen, though, is in places where the virus does become epidemic, behaviors do change. You know, people talk about the fact that we had a pretty dense wave of uh, spread in the South and you saw the epidemic curve come down um, quite dramatically, although cases are now starting to go back up again. And, and some people ascribe that to the fact that uh, you had a, a lot of spread and so you've achieved a background rate of immunity. Um, it's not one factor that's creating conditions that is preventing spread in certain areas. It's, it's a multitude of factors. And, and the two most prominent factors are you do achieve a rate of immunity when you do have epidemic spread in certain settings, Miami, Houston, New York, obviously. And once you get to 20 percent exposure, you're developing a level of immunity where the RT, the rate of transfer, does start to slow. But the other thing that happens is behavior changes. People start to um, you know, change what they're doing because they see the disease around them. And, you know, those patterns of behavioral change uh, do do linger. And so you do get a change in people's culture and people's patterns and, and, and what they're willing to do to try to prevent future spread or prevent, you know, future uh, risk. And so, you know, I think if you look at some of these environments where you have had dense spread um, after that, unfortunately, it, it, you know, it takes the spread to to start to change behaviors. But after the, the spread gets under control, you still have people. Um, who are expressing more caution. I think you see that, you know, prominently here in the Northeast where people are, you know, sort of wary about uh, the uh, the virus because of the experience that we had as New Yorkers back in uh, March and April. We certainly do. I wonder also, though, you know, we back in the spring, we were looking to Europe to see what they were going through. You know, Italy got through it, Spain got through it, UK got through it. And now we're starting to see, you know, resurgences, particularly in Spain, um, also in France and to an extent in the UK. I mean, should what do you expect for places like New York that got through that tough time? Is the second wave almost inevitable in some ways? I think that there's a lot of risk that we're going to have a resurgence in infection heading into the fall and the winter. I think cities that have had uh, experienced very significant epidemics probably are at less risk than other cities, in part because there is a background rate of immunity, as I, as I suggested, and in part because you have more adherence to uh, measures that is going to prevent spread. I think New York's certainly still at risk. You, you have a lot of uh, a lot of movement in and out of the city, and so you're going to get uh, implants. You're going to get new infections introduced into the city if you have infection around the country. Um, you know, but you do have a change in behavior. You do have a background rate of immunity in, in the New York City population. So, you know, the, tr- the rate of transfer is going to be slower. And hopefully we won't see an epidemic with the same density that we saw back in, in March and April. But the overall seropositivity around the country is not that high, probably around 8 percent, certainly less than 10 percent. You know, outside of certain cities that have had very dense epidemics, uh, a lot of the population really hasn't been exposed to this. So, there's a lot of fertile ground if this virus wants to spread and, and, and the conditions are right for it to spread. And I think certainly heading into the fall, as we go back to school, as businesses do restart, um, people are back on college campuses, uh, respiratory pathogen like this naturally circulates more readily in the winter um, for a whole host of reasons, not least of which is because you get more efficient transfer of um, these kinds of pathogens through, through droplet um, droplet transfer in, in colder weather. And, and our, um, you know, our, our, our respiratory pathways are... Um, less uh, less impervious to infection like this. And, and also the epidemiology of spread changes because people head indoors in the wintertime. So the, the situation is such that there's a lot of risk heading into the fall. You know, we haven't really had to contend with this virus in the fall of the winter. When, when this virus first struck 
the United States, we were coming out of the winter. We were heading into spring. We dealt with it through the summer. This is the first time that we're going to have to deal with a pandemic respiratory pathogen in the season in which it prefers to spread, which is the fall and the winter. Um, so I think that there's a lot of risk heading into the fall. And that's why I think we need to continue to you know, remain vigilant about this. If you look at the data on the seven-day moving average um, of cases, um, there's a sharp and unmistakable uptick over the last four to five days uh, in that data. And you're starting to see some of those graphs appear on Twitter. Um, you know, that's probably a post-Labor Day effect. Um, you know, it may be uh, a fall effect. Uh, that's that's concerning because it's, it's a sharp uptick. It's obviously not a... a, a long trend right now, but I think it it bears very close watching. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You mentioned, you know, the idea of herd immunity. And so I want to bring in a question from Rich, uh, who asked on Twitter. Um, he noted that this is something that we heard from Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, a few months back, that cases are actually 10 to 12 times the confirmed case number. So by Rich's math, he notes that would imply six and a half million current cases times 10 equals 65 million people would have had the virus, um, noting that herd immunity would be 60% times 330 million people. I've heard more closer to 70%. So Rich asks, are we approximately 33% of the way towards herd immunity? I have not checked Rich's math, but but you're saying there's still a lot of fertile ground. So how should we think about that idea that so many uh, infections are probably going undetected? Could there be more herd immunity than we than we realize? I think there's more. I think there's immunity in the population. I you know. CDC said at one point that we were diagnosing one in 10 infections. Probably in the beginning, we were diagnosing a lot less than that. Probably now we're, we're doing a better job turning over infections. And maybe if you look over the average of the length of time, it comes out to about one in 10. They they base some of that on the the, um, the seropositivity data they're getting back. And so the White House struck a contract, I believe, with Quest and LabCorp to layer on um, antibody testing to normal blood draws across the entire country. CDC reports some of this data, but they only report the data for certain large cities. And they're actually getting data for everywhere in the country, even small communities. And so when CDC comes out and talks about um, what they think the actual rate of infection is relative to what we're diagnosing, they're looking at that seropositivity data. I've looked at it as well. It's probably a little bit better than one in 10 right now. Um, but not much. But but I think, you know, the, the question's right, that there is a lot of people who've already been exposed to this. Um, but there's a lot of room to go. Um, true herd immunity isn't going to be achieved at uh, 60 or 70 percent because that's sort of the classic teaching that if you have an infection um, where the R naught is between two and three to, to achieve herd immunity, you have to infect 60 or 70 percent of the population. That's like in a, um, a, a sort of laboratory setting, if you will. In the real world, not everyone is equally vulnerable to the infection. Some people have innate immunity. They have immunity that's from prior coronavirus infections. It's going to be cross-reactive. Some people aren't going to get infected because they don't um, expose themselves in ways where they are at risk. So they're much less likely to get infected. And so in a real world, to achieve some level of background immunity, you probably only need to infect maybe 30, 40 percent of the population. And you're going to get a level of immunity where this is going to stop transferring as readily. It's not going to stop transferring. It's going to stop transferring as readily. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have true herd immunity in the sense that once a certain proportion of the population is infected, this this just stops transferring because the immunity here is likely to be highly variable. People are likely to be able to get reinfected. Hopefully the second time you get reinfected, you're going to have some residual immunity, some T-cell immunity that will prevent you from having a really bad case, but you're still going to be able to get infected and maybe transmit the infection. So it's not going to just stop 
transferring. It's more like the flu where, you know, it's going to run its course like the flu does over the course of a season because um, most of the people who are likely to get infected end up getting infected or they get vaccinated and are protected by the vaccine um, or they just escape. They end up, you know, being able to protect themselves through the season and not getting it. This is going to run its course, um, and but it's going to want to infect, you know, maybe 30, 40 percent of the population before you sort of see the epidemic run its course over the course of this fall and winter into the spring. That's, you know, possible scenario. And there's still a ways to go. I mean, you know, even if you kind of assume the... Um, the, the out of bounds of what, what the infection rate may have been based on, you know, looking at the number of diagnosed cases and multiplying it by some factor, you're still at maybe 10% of the population that's been infected uh, by this. And, you know, presumably there are people who are more likely to have been infected because they got exposed first, but there's still a long way to go. I mean, if you can still infect another 10, 20% of the population quite easily, that's a lot of people and that's a lot of death and disease along the way. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned we're heading into flu season. What are your expectations for what, you know, people are talking about a twindemic, COVID plus flu. There's some hope that because we've seen in the Southern Hemisphere a milder flu season because of efforts people are taking to protect themselves, maybe we'll see that here too. What do you think is going to happen? Well, if you, if you look back at the 2006 pandemic planning that we're really modeling our response off of right now, um, that plan contemplated mitigation. This was a, this was a plan that was almost entirely drafted in, in response to the threat of an influenza pandemic, and that that plan contemplated the mitigation that we're implementing now. Um, there there were a number of things that I think were misapplied from that plan relative to a coronavirus. Things you would do differently for a coronavirus, but but it contemplated the kinds of mitigation steps that we're taking now, albeit on a much more targeted basis, because it envisioned that we would have a lot of diagnostics deployed and the mitigation wouldn't be universally employed, but would be targeted to places where the virus was, in fact, epidemic. I think what, what one of the observations from this, um, from this pandemic is that the mitigation steps worked against the coronavirus, although it's, again, things you would do differently from the planning, um, for example, how you would treat schools. But it works really well against flu. And so what you're seeing in the Southern Hemisphere, to your point, is, you know, coronavirus levels are coming down, but flu levels are plummeting. I mean, there's been really no no flu epidemic. And so the mitigation, the flu does seem to be far more sensitive to mitigation than coronavirus in a lot of respects. And for reasons I don't think we fully understand right now, just as an aside, that, that pandemic planning from 2006 envisioned really schools being at the center of the mitigation because it, it was it was perceived quite rightly that a pandemic flu strain disproportionately impacts kids, which is true. If you look at what happened in 1918, even in the swine flu, disproportionately impacted kids. And also kids, children end up being um, significant vectors for spread. With this virus, children are vectors of spread, but they're less significant vectors of spread, certainly relative to flu. And this virus um, doesn't disproportionately affect kids. It disproportionately affects older people. And so putting schools at the center of the mitigation efforts in a community might be misapplied in the setting of a coronavirus relative to a flu, but we ultimately um, adopted a flu playbook here. So this is, these are the kinds of things we're going to have to reconsider when we develop a more comprehensive pandemic planning. Hopefully, you know, in 2021, after we get out of the current political environment, we can, you know, look, reflect on these things, um, I think, more cogently. But, um, but we're going to need um, pandemic planning that isn't so pathogen specific. Um, and we're also mm-hmm. going to need to think differently about coronaviruses. That's such an interesting point. Maybe not elementary schools, maybe colleges for the coronavirus. But um, I want to get to a question that just came in, actually, about the flu from Calvin Jefferson, who asks, just wondering, what's the risk of taking the flu shot with COVID lingering? Yeah, there really shouldn't be any um, in terms of, I I mean, I wouldn't, uh, 
I wouldn't get vaccinated for the flu if I think I have COVID. Obviously, the recommendations around getting vaccinated for flu is that you don't have a febrile illness, and there's reasons for that. Hmm. Um, but um, but I wouldn't be concerned about getting vaccinated in an environment where COVID is lingering. I mean, I, you know, I would take all the precautions that you would normally take to try to protect yourself from COVID when you're getting in, in the setting of the vaccination. But uh, I wouldn't worry about if the concern is I get vaccinated for the flu and three days later I contract COVID, I wouldn't be worried about that risk. I mean, the, the getting vaccinated for the flu far outweighs any theoretical risk about sort of co-infection with the vaccination. Yeah. And a lot of public health officials trying to emphasize, go get your flu shot to try to protect yourself from the thing you can protect yourself from uh, while we await a vaccine for COVID-19. And I actually want to turn the conversation to that because I have so many questions for you on what the vaccine process is going to look like. And I have to start with what's happening with AstraZeneca. You know, the, they uh, had the trial pause last week um, because of an event in the UK they still haven't confirmed what the event was exactly, although we've heard from Francis Collins, the NIH director, it was transverse myelitis, a spinal cord condition. Now, the latest is that they've gotten the go-ahead in the UK to restart the trial there, saying that it's safe. They don't yet have the US okay. Um, what's your read on this situation? Um, if the UK regulator says it's okay, would you expect the FDA also to find, find that and to move ahead? Well, not necessarily. I think the FDA is going to make an independent decision. And I'm, of course, on the board of Pfizer, which has one of the vaccines that's in advanced development. I, you know, there's a lot of um, questions uh, that regulators are going to have to sort through. And so the first order question is, um, are these, is this a case of transverse myelitis um, that has been reported? And if you, if it is a case of transverse myelitis, you, you, and even if it's not, you're going to go back and look at that other case much more closely. So there was a previous case that was reported. It was reported. So I don't, we don't know if it's true that there was a presumed case of transverse myelitis and it was subsequently diagnosed as multiple sclerosis and deemed not to be related to the vaccine. But in the setting of, of a, a new case of presumed transverse myelitis, that other case becomes much more um, important to look very closely at. There's a 10% conversion between transverse myelitis and multiple sclerosis. And so you do worry that could that have been in case of transverse myelitis that then converted to multiple sclerosis and perhaps the vaccine, this is all speculation, but these are the kinds of questions regulators are going to ask. Could the vaccine have, you know, potentially either potentiated the, the worsening or the onset of symptoms or, or made someone who was already susceptible to a condition and maybe was on a sort of prodrome towards it, um, develop the full-blown condition? I presume that they, they made a conclusion that it was multiple sclerosis unrelated to the vaccine. There must have been some indication that the patient had some symptoms before they were vaccinated. But you start to ask, could the vaccine have precipitated it or, or accelerated it? If, in fact, this is a case of transverse myelitis, they, they, they firmly establish that. And then you go look at the other case. So those, those are the questions initially you asked. And if the regulators presume that, that they, this is at least one, maybe two cases of transverse myelitis associated with vaccination could be related to the vaccine. You're never going to be able to determine that with any um, any certainty. But, you know, you look at the timing of the onset of symptoms relative to the vaccine, you look at the condition and the rarity of it in the population and what, what predispositions the patients may have had. The next question you're going to ask is what what attribute of the vaccine is, is um, you know, sort of activating T cells in a way that um, it's, it's um, allowing T cells to attack the patient's myelin. What is the what is the protein? What is the epitope on the vaccine that's cross-reacting with myelin um, and, and activating T cells to attack to, to attack the patient's myelin? And you know, there's two main components. One is the vector that's delivering the epitope, and the other is the epitope. The epitope is the part of the vaccine that's sort of derived from coronavirus or mimics coronavirus that we want to um, instruct our bodies on how to uh, 
develop antibodies against. And the vector is the part of the vaccine that's delivering that epitope. In this case, the epitope is a spike protein. So that, and all the vaccines are using the same epitope right now. The spike protein is a part of the coronavirus vaccine coronavirus that it uses to gain entry into human cells. So it's a big, large protein. It's a really nice target. And if we develop antibodies against the spike protein, presumably those antibodies are going to afford us protection from getting infected with coronavirus. The vector that AstraZeneca is using is an adenoviral vector, um, an adenovirus that's derived from chimpanzees. So an adenovirus is basically a common cold virus. They're, the cold virus that they use is derived from chimpanzees. It's attenuated to be non-replicating. So it doesn't continue to replicate in your body. And the reason um, they use a chimpanzee adenovirus is because presumably no one's been exposed to it. And so nobody has antibodies to the vector. So if they use that vector, it's not like we have a whole bunch of antibodies and we're going to attack the vector before the vaccine ever has a chance to, to work. The reason to use a viral vector to deliver that epitope, the, the spike protein, is because viral vectors are presumed to have certain advantages in a vaccine. They can elicit a T-cell response and maybe maybe elicit more durable immunity, and they elicit a very robust immune response because the body says, you know, this, this virus shouldn't be here, and then it comes to attack the virus, and then it finds a spike protein and attacks the spike protein too. So it's presumed to elicit a very um, robust immunity. I've oversimplified this terribly. Megan, people are going to send me um, things on Twitter saying <laughs> that I've, I've just botched the science terribly, but I'm trying to simplify it. But the reason why this is, discussion is important is, is, is here. Um, if you think it's the vector, then it's um, vaccine-specific. If you think it's the epitope that's eliciting the side effect, then it becomes something that you need to more carefully evaluate all the vaccines. Now, the argument against it being the epitope, and this, this assumes that it's even a side effect related to the vaccine. So this is assumptions based on assumptions based on assumptions. But, you know, since, mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to sort of think this through, the argument against it being the spike protein is that if the spike protein was el eliciting transverse myelitis, We've probably infected 300 million people with coronavirus worldwide. So we've infected, we've diagnosed 30 million. If you think we're only diagnosing one in 10 globally, which is probably even worse than that globally, is at least 300 million people have been infected with coronavirus. So if the spike protein was a common epitope eliciting transverse myelitis, you'd expect to see a healthy number of cases of transverse myelitis associated with COVID. And in fact, if you look at the literature, there are case reports, but there's really a handful of case reports. I mean, I could find less than five case reports of transverse myelitis. It's probably more than that, but there's not a lot. And transverse myelitis is known to be associated with viral syndromes anyway. So it's not unusual to see a handful of case reports with that many people infected. So that argues against it being the spike protein, but you're never going to fully discharge that theoretical risk. And what, what you're going to want to do is really good pharmacovigilance. And so you're going to want to do very good post-market follow-up for neurological signs and symptoms. And every neurological side effect you get in the trial, you're going to look at a little bit more uh, carefully. So every migraine headache will be evaluated a little bit differently, a little bit more carefully. And that's just prudent you know, drug safety and, and drug monitoring and, and drug regulation. And Data Safety Monitoring Board takes these things into consideration um, and and figures out how to factor in accruing information in terms of how they're looking at the safety database. But the reality is we're never going to be able to determine any of these things with, with any precision. We're not going to really be able to say it's definitely causal. I mean, if there's two cases, it starts to look much more likely that it's causal. Um, we're not, and we're not going to be able to determine whether it's the vector or the epitope. Um, even if it leans in the direction of being the vector, you're not going to know that for certain. So you're going to have to just, you know, proceed with prudence. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You don't seem necessarily convinced by hearing that the UK regulator has given this the green light to proceed uh, and, and them saying it's safe without telling us what actually happened. You know, the University of Oxford, which developed the vaccine and AstraZeneca, which is manufacturing it uh, and running these trials, cite patient confidentiality. But do you think that, that they need to share what the diagnosis was and exactly how they've determined it's safe to proceed? Look, I think that there should be more sharing of information given the um, extreme scrutiny and, you know, um, attention being paid to these vaccines. This is not a normal circumstance. I mean, typically you, you would make that information available to people who are conducting the clinical trials. So you would update the investigative brochure with the new information about what the potential safety issue is and what you've learned about it. Um, you know, they did make a quick determination about restarting that trial. But the reality is, if you if you believe you only have one case of transverse myelitis and you're not certain if there's a causal relationship, you probably are going to allow the trial to, to go forward, even if you think it could be a causal relationship, because that's the only way to figure it out. Um, you know, and there is risk in investigation. It needs to be properly disclosed to the patients who are in the clinical trial and the investigators enrolling those patients. But you'd probably allow it to go forward. I think if you have two cases of transverse myelitis in a relatively small clinical trial like that, that you you believe could be uh, causal because of the timing of the, the transverse myelitis in association with when the vaccine was administered, you know, that could be um, something that, that causes you to potentially decide that you're not going to take the trial forward if you're a regulator. But I think one case you, you would decide, even if you suspected it could be a causal relationship, but you're not sure, you'd probably go forward with the clinical trial because that's the only way you're going to really determine. Um, and, and at the end of the day, if there's a small risk of transverse myelitis associated with the vaccine and you don't see it in subsequent large trials, but you can't fully discharge the risk, you know, if the vaccine is otherwise effective, the risk benefit may make sense, may, may still make sense in certain populations. You're going to have to make that judgment. It's a hard judgment to make. But there are vaccines associated with um, with rare side effects. And in fact, the flu vaccines associated with transverse myelitis and other rare um, um, side effects, including meningitis. You know, but it's, it's very rare. Um, you know, it, it's very low um, incidence. And the risk benefit, obviously, of the flu vaccine makes sense for the vast majority of patients, notwithstanding the very, um, very small risks associated with it. Hmm. Well, the New York Times had a great piece by Katie Thomas uh, on, a few days ago, basically based off what was happening with AstraZeneca and the communications around it. And the scientific community, including folks like Dr. Eric Topol, calling on all the companies involved in these late-stage vaccine trials to be more transparent, uh, given this is an unprecedented time, and do things like publish their clinical trial protocols and their plans for taking looks at the data, these statistical analyses done by the Data Safety and Monitoring Board. Um, Here's his tweet uh, saying, Dear Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, we, the life science medical community and the public, request immediate publication of the data analysis plans for your vaccine trials. Transparency, he says, in medical research has never been more essential. What do you think about publishing trial protocols? 
Hey, look, I have a lot of respect for Eric. He's been doing this a long time and he has good judgment around these issues. I, I think the companies should lean in the direction of being more transparent. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to speak to like this or that. Um, but I think the idea of speaking to the progress of these trials, um, making it understood what the general uh, protocol is, and that's available. I mean, the, the, the general protocol is available online. Um, making the data available as it's appropriate, um, as it accrues. I mean, you know, not speaking on behalf of Pfizer or commenting on them, but, you know, they gave a presentation yesterday. You tweeted out the data that they presented um, as such that they have it because they're not getting data and uh, they're not getting the unblinded data. Um, so I think I think the, m- the more you can lean into trying to provide transparency about the conduct of the clinical trials and the progress of the clinical trials, the more that that's going to engender public trust. And that's really what this is about. I think the reason to try to heighten the transparency um, is because the scrutiny is heightened. And on the back end of this, we want the public to trust the process. And the more that they feel that they have insight into the process as it as it unfolded, um, and the more they feel that companies were forthcoming with information, I think that that ultimately on the margin is going to make people feel more confident about about the overall integrity of the process. And so I certainly agree with the sentiment of what Eric's uh, um, saying there. I, you know, he he's actually got a lot more experience than me uh, conducting clinical trials. And so I would defer to him on what he thinks should should be made public and, and not really comment on it. Hmm. Um, we've got a question from Sam who asks, will we have the option to choose our own vaccine platform if there's more than one that receives FDA approval? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I haven't really contemplated it. I mean, we should be so lucky that we're going to have multiple vaccines in the market. Um, you know, it, it, I guess it's, it's going to depend on, on what's available in the market, what the what the available supply is, if there's actually going to be enough supply in the market that people can sort of pick and choose. You know, you go to the doctor's office and you can choose between flu mist or, or the injection. But uh, is every site going to get um, all two or three vaccines, whatever is available in the market at that time? Probably not. Probably not initially. I mean, the supply is going to be constrained and, and you might be sort of shunted into one vaccine or the other, depending on what, what site has what supply at what time, assuming you want to be vaccinated when it becomes available, at least at least through 2020, um, I would think. And that, that would be my base case um, on, on what's likely to uh, to unfold. And it could be the case that data from the clinical trials demonstrate that, you know, certain vaccines might be cert- might be more beneficial or more risky for that matter, but or more likely more beneficial in certain populations, you might see a stronger immune response in an older population with one vaccine versus the other. And that might cause um, regulators to make some decisions about how they're going to direct the vaccines, at least initially. Gotcha. Well, we're almost at five o'clock, but I want to just ask you a couple of practical questions because I know a lot of folks, you know, are weighing what's safe to do right now. And, you know, it feels a little safer because it hasn't gotten cold yet and maybe rates are lower in some parts of the country. So I'm going to ask you what you do, um, if you wouldn't mind, in a quick lightning round. You know, the first one is, do you dine outside at restaurants? I do. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't go out a lot. I, I used to go out to eat much more than I do now. Probably go out once a week, but I exclusively eat outside. I don't know what I'm going to do when it gets cold out. I'm hoping the local restaurants here get heat lamps and can extend my season a little bit. But I'm going to be reluctant to dine indoors, uh, quite frankly, until you know until we're through this next wave. Do you visit friends? You know, we have friends that we visit, um, not in a socially distanced way, but they're they're sort of. Um, in our circle. So, you know, we've, we've created a, a cohort or a pod, if you will, um, of families that the kids, uh, kids socialize with and we socialize with as adults. And, um, we've kind of have an implicit agreement that we're going to, uh, we're going to, you know, stay together as a pod. So that, that's kind of the way we've approached it, um, so far. And I think we're probably going to continue that habit. 
Wow, being in a pod with Dr. Gottlieb. Um, do you send your kids to school? <laughs> yeah, so public schools have restarted where I live. Um, it's a half a day. Children wear masks. My kids are going to public school. Um, the school felt that the logistics of trying to serve lunch um, and maintain the social distancing was too difficult. So it's a half a day of in-classroom learning and then a half a day of online instruction when they come home and they wear masks uh, over the course of the day. And my, my children uh, are not the um, portion of the population that doesn't want to wear masks. They very much believe in masks. <laughs> yes, I remember early on they were wearing spacesuits to protect themselves. Uh, my last question for you, and this might be a controversial one. I don't know if you're a jogger. Do you believe joggers should wear masks? If you are a jogger, do you wear a mask while you jog? Yeah, I I, I, I used to be a jogger, but I haven't been exercising nearly enough. Um, you look, I think if you're you're out and you're staying away from people, um, you know, you don't you don't need to be wearing a mask. I mean, you know, the mask is really when you're going to be coming into contact with people, um, and so people need to make judgments about that. I think that in some in some environments, people feel uncomfortable when they see a jogger co co coming by without a mask, but it's kind of hard to jog in, jog in a mask. And so I think people should have the uh, ability to make informed judgments about that if they can keep distance from other people, not have to be encumbered while they're exercising with that. That was Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. We spoke on September 16th, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, the Path Forward series. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.